Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, now let us turn uh, to our Bibles as the message comes. Uh, you can go ahead and take this one. Uh, we're going to be turning in the Bible. If the word cloud could come up, I want to remind everybody that's listening today that we are a Bible-believing church. That's what makes New Covenant, uh, I don't want to say unique, but it is, it is one of the uh, identification markers. We cherish the Bible. We've got the Bible always open in the church. When you step into this building, the thing that you should focus on is the Word of God. Since scripture says, and Jesus even echoed it from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when there's a famine of the word of God, that's not a good thing. So I pray that you're in a Bible-believing church for any that are not members of this. But as you're tuned in to this message today, uh, we're going to be looking at the word of God. Because if you look on the word cloud, you'll also see that in it is the words of eternal life. It's the good news, the gospel evidence. Uh, and that's where we call it, we're gospel-driven. Uh, whether we eat or drink or whatever we're ending up doing, we want to communicate the gospel here. And because of the Bible's emphasis on the gospel, we cherish the worship with God. We don't have to run away from God. We can run to God. There's no other place we'd rather be. And there's a spectrum of responses, of course, uh, but, but it's because God is big in salvation and we want to be able to tell others in a winsome way, a friendly way, a caring way, we want people to know about our Savior. So if we could reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word, uh, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And I'll be reading it here uh, in the King James, my old Bible here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'm going to reread that verse for us. It is the last verse of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. This is the Apostle Paul writing to one of the, uh, the churches that he started over in Corinth. Uh, this was a... Uh, a difficult church plant. He was there for a year and a half to try to get things going. But this was a, uh, an educated community. People were, uh, were, not, they were not simple. Uh, they were more complex. And many of the world's ideas came to Corinth. And the Apostle Paul was a champion there of being able to communicate the truth. And so when you finally get to the end of his first book to them, chapter 16 is where the next verse picks up about a collection. This is one of his final thoughts to the congregation that he ministered to for a year and a half. Hear these words again. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be uh, verse 50, 55 all the way to 58. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? For the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives to us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do pray that you'll take the reading of the Word and especially the preaching of the Word and make it an effectual means to our understanding. Lord, I pray that you will give us insights into things that maybe we had not noticed before. Lord, I pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we're gathered uh, collectively, uh, we know that we are the body of Christ wherever you have us reaching. 
So, Lord, speak to each one of our hearts individually, and so equip the saints that we may be able to do our Father's business until he comes again. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, snow is in the air, at least it was over the last 24 hours. Uh, we might remember this is the blizzard of 22, and uh, right now the temperatures are still in the teens, and so uh, I pray that the Word of God will warm your heart wherever you find yourself, and that he'll equip you to be steadfast and unmovable. And I'm not meaning like your car in your driveway that can't move. Uh, I want you to realize that when the apostle was teaching this, it echoes exactly what the book of James said, uh, where in James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you go through your various difficulties of life. Uh, and he says, when faith has had its testings, then you, it produces a steadfastness, a firmness. And so that's why when we were looking at this, uh, this text, I've run into Paul's counsel on the same concept in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It's interesting how he also tells the believers to be firm, to have roots, almost like a great tree that, that can handle whatever storm comes, or a great anchor that keeps a ship from falling into the rocks. Uh, and so today's message is uh, another application of the be steadfast motif. To God be true in 22, so that you're not tossed to and fro, and fro with every wind, whether it comes from the east or west or north or south, but that you would be steadfast. Uh, in summary, those who are believers, uh, and Paul, excuse me, Paul was writing to believers in Corinth. He said, if you're trusting in the way, the truth, and the life, he says, you may feel like you're a minority. You may feel as though um, you are trivial, that you are insignificant, that you're just a drop in the ocean. Or you may feel like uh, you're just um, easily in invisible to most people's eyes. But that is just simply what the world, the flesh, and the devil is trying to get you to believe. These are the ones that, as Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, as we looked at recently, uh, these are like the, the rain that comes down and the flood that comes up and the winds that blow that actually shake people, people's lives up, what they've built in their lives. And as we were talking about from that Matthew 7, that person who builds a life that is not on the foundation of Christ will have their house go smash when they're facing all these difficulties. But we're going to look at Paul's examination of this, this idea of steadfast. I want to look at the text a little bit more deeply. And uh, when you do, you're going to find that, that this church in Corinth, um, it needed some encouragement to be steadfast. Um, if, you, if you're familiar with how many chapters are in 1 Corinthians, and if you're familiar that there's actually two books that we have of Corinthians, uh, first and second, and there's even potentially a third, I can tell you that the apostle was concerned about the people there in Corinth. They were struggling. I think one commentator put it this way. He says, the church had been established in Corinth, but Paul finds it very difficult to keep Corinth out of the church. I chuckled at that one. Uh, yes, you have a church in Corinth, but the church in Corinth had a lot of Corinth in the church. And what that simply means is that the pagan lifestyle that many that had embraced the secular influences uh, had a profound influence upon what was going on even inside the church. 
and hence Paul writes this disciplinary letter. Uh, he has to address a few things because people were beginning to think that they could make their own decisions and decide for themselves what's right and wrong instead of being able to be faithful to Scripture. Now, in these days, the average person didn't have a Bible uh, they didn't have an app for their Bible, and so they were really prone to listen to the voices of the age. In that disciplinary letter, it's kind of interesting that Paul was told about some of the struggles. There was divisiveness in that church. They were, uh, some were following one leader instead of another, and that was divisive. He said there was immorality in the church. You know, there were folks who were saying that, that they could fudge on God's standard of, of let a, a husband and a wife be together, and that's undefiled, as Hebrews 13, 4 says. Uh, but everything that is different from that, whether it's uh, porneia or whether it's uh, other kinds of sexual impurity, uh, in Corinth, they had it too. And uh, part of the reason in chapter 5, you'll find is, is, is that the church leadership didn't even speak up against it. And the apostle is saying, hey, guys... God says it's wrong. And that's why he even talked about how important marriage is and uh, how to try to keep them together even when there's infidelity. Uh, Paul also had to deal with lawsuits about selfishness, about abuse of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, and even the, the misuse of the spiritual gifts that led to sometimes pride and arrogance. Uh, and, and then the one that we're picking up here in chapter 15 has to deal with the resurrection. And mostly, it was about the denial of the resurrection. See, as Corinth had crept into the church in Corinth, people even in the church began to lose sight of the significance of the resurrection. And that's why in this particular text, I want to give you three easy points to remember that Paul is writing to the people there at the end of chapter 15 as he's wrapping up all these issues. He's trying to answer all of their questions and get them back on the straight and narrow to try to get them to listening to the Lord's voice and not the voices of everybody else, not even the one in the mirror. In this particular verse, that's where we find this challenge. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so simply let me highlight this from an expositional standpoint. First, we're going to look at the cause of this pertinent call to be steadfast. We're going to look at the cause. Secondly, I want to look at the comprehensiveness of this powerful call to be steadfast. It's pretty complex. It's pretty, com uh, comp uh, as I say, comprehensive. There's more to it than just the word steadfast. And then thirdly, I want to take notice of something that I easily forgot, and maybe you would too is the compassion of this personal call to be steadfast. The apostle, the pastor, is looking at his congregation there. He's writing to them, and you can hear his heartfelt plea. It's personal. God has made it so that it doesn't just generically go to everybody, but it's a call to you. And so as we look at these, let me, let me drive these points home from the text. Uh, in verse 58, uh, therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, the word therefore is the key to the cause. Uh, as we explain this text, the therefore is there for a reason. And when you catch on to this, we got to focus on what is the therefore, therefore. That's the cause for this pertinent call. The second thing that we're going to take notice of is the comprehensiveness of the power. And that's where he, he goes and listen to all these words. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labors are not in vain in the Lord. See, all of that is a part of the same call. 
It, it, it's more, it, I, I like to talk about the triperspectival approach. Well, it deals with how you think and how you feel and actually what you do, your head, your heart, and your hands. In this particular case, it has to deal with more with your, with your like I tend to say, with your head, with your thinking, than your actions, and then what you're believing in your heart. We're going to be looking at those in a moment. And then the final point has to do with those words, uh, agape adelphoi. Um, those two Greek words, agape has to do with love and adolfoi has to do with brothers or family. And so he says, you're my beloved family. There is an intimacy and a passion that you can't skip over there. So if you're following along with me, uh, let's explore those three things, looking first at the cause of this pertinent call to be steadfast. Okay, when I look at chapter 15... I realize that anything that came before that could be the reason for the therefore. The Apostle Paul is giving this great admonition. This, he could make it a generic covering after he's done all of the counsel throughout the whole book dealing with all those divisive issues, all the immorality issues, all the struggle of, of arrogance and confusion in the church and public worship issues. He could say, therefore, therefore, in light of all of it, you need to be steadfast. You know, that is absolutely a possible interpretation here. But I really do believe that the therefore really comes in at this significant issue of the resurrection. Because if you're following along, it's in chapter 15. And chapter 15 is a huge text. As I said, it has 58 verses. And if you go back with me, look at the beginning of chapter 15. And you'll be familiar with it. Uh, he says, Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, and by which you, you are also being saved, if you hold fast, or if you're, if you're steadfast, okay, uh, if you hold fast... Uh, to the words which I preached to you, so that you would not have believed them in vain. Those are the first two verses of, of Romans, excuse me, of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. You can see that the, the apostle is beginning to talk to his church members. He's talking to them about the gospel. In a sense, he's already taken them through some of the issues in the church, and now he's getting to the core issues that's going to help them to get through and to endure, to do as James says, to count it all joy through the various difficulties. He's going to tell us that in chapter 15. This is a beautiful gospel. He says, I was there a year and a half, and every day I proclaim to you the good news that salvation is not by works, at least not by yours. Your salvation is by Jesus' works. He completed the, the, the covenant of works. He fulfilled the, the law's demands. And that's why he says in verses 3 and 4, he goes on to say, uh, let me tell you what that gospel is. It's that guy, Jesus. And by this time, by the way, I believe that, the, that Paul is writing to people in Corinth uh, who obviously weren't there when Jesus was crucified. A few of them that had left there that had been persecuted, this is already about uh, two, and, two and a half decades. Uh, if Jesus ascended at 33 uh, and now it's about 46, you can say that it's been about 22, 23, 24 years. And some of the people that had seen it have already died. And so most people know about Jesus through secondhand information except by the apostle himself. And when you look there, he says, I delivered to you as a firsthand account, first of all, that which I also received. I got this direct 
He said, I didn't see with my eyes, but I got it directly from the risen Christ. He met me on the road to Damascus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. He said, for I'm delivering to you, and when I was there for, for those year and a half, what I first received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And you can see it clearly how he was a guy that treasured the Old Testament too. He said, Jesus did this just like the Old Testament told us he would. And it is in concert with what the angel told Joseph and, and even to Mary uh, that this Jesus would be born and he would save his people from their sins. So Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And so what you find here is you find that this is not just a theoretical Jesus that's a nice guy and a good teacher. What you find is a real person who showed up on this real planet and he did something. He lived the life that we couldn't live, a perfect life. And then he died the death that we deserved as a substitutionary atonement. And as an evidence of that death, he was buried. And as we know, as a part of three days. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And this is one of the key things that he brings to, to why we're saying the cause. Finally, my brothers, be steadfast. It's because of the end of verse 4. If he rose again on the third day. Now, think about this. What did he rise again from? That's in verse 3. He rose from death. The issue that, is, that the whole chapter 15 is all about is when you breathe your last on earth, is that the end? And you see, in Corinth... That the, as Corinth was creeping into the church, many people began to do just like they did during Noah's day. They would eat and drink and have fun. They would do whatever seems right. They would, they would take the latest and greatest. They would follow the zeitgeist of the day. And in those particular times in Noah's day, uh, they lived to be quite long. So if you can imagine day after day after day after day turned into year after year after year and even century after century after century. And when people lived 200, 300 years and they never saw God, they didn't see his fingerprints, they didn't acknowledge him, they didn't have the scripture to be read to them. You can imagine that they were jaded and they said, this is all there is. Let's just have fun. Let's eat today, let's drink today, let's party today, for that's all there is. There's no looking for a judgment that follows. Now, Noah was a preacher of the good news, and he was telling them that judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. He said, God's wrath is going to be unveiled. And of course, the people of that day, <laughs> they mocked him, even though Noah was preaching for probably over 100 years as the New Testament records. Can you imagine? I thought about it as a preacher. If nobody responds to the preaching of the good news, it's hard enough if nobody responds after one service, but if nobody responds after one year, and if nobody responds after 10 years, you're just like, what's going on, God? And there Noah was, dealing with a cultural zeitgeist that said that there is no God, so do whatever you want to do. You be you. It doesn't matter. Now, I was telling you that in Corinth, uh, people were buying into that same philosophy. And, and the reason why is, as, as, uh, as Solomon told us in, the, in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. The same modality that caused people back in Noah's day to do whatever is the same modality that happened in Paul's day and in Corinth. People would do whatever they wanted. And 
I imagine that you'll find that it's the same going on today, even in America, even in this world. Now, it's kind of interesting that, that there's a lot of polarization going on because if you can get a bunch of people to do it with you, then the next thing you know, you become almost like an army. You become like a, 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 a zeitgeist. You, you move the, the passion of the day or, or you make it look like there's a lot of likes behind you and, and you have a big force about you. You know, this is kind of the fear right now when you're looking at Ukraine and the border, uh, where on the other side of the border, there appears to be 100,000 people together. They all are wearing the same uniform from a different country than the Ukraines, and it looks like not a party. It looks like they have an agenda. And so guess what happens on the other side? The people that look alike, the people that are wearing the same garb and the same outfit are, are allying themselves, and they're trying to work together. You see, this is, this is the same kind of thing that happens. People do what's right in their own eyes, and they try to get others to do it with them. And this is happening even in the church at Corinth, and I pray that it's not happening in your heart. So when you look at this, he says, I delivered to you the gospel about Jesus Christ dying for our sins, and that he was buried, then he rose again. And then verse 5, and continuing, he says, he was seen by Peter, then he was seen by the twelve, he was seen by 500 people at once, and then it goes on to say that he was seen by James and then he was seen by all of the apostles because that was one of the reasons you had to have met the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. And then Paul says, oh, that includes me too, because when you read that next verse, he says, and last of all, Jesus was seen by me also as by one born out of due time, Acts chapter 9. Verses 3 through 8. So you can see how some of this stuff is coming together. The cause for being steadfast is because people had lost sight of what really mattered. And it wasn't long life. It was eternal life that really mattered. And the Apostle Paul goes through and, and spends these 58 verses of chapter 15 to help the Christians to realize that death is not the end. I told you in my pastoral prayer that uh, one of my... Uh, extended family members died this week. Uh, he had been a runner in his life, and uh, he was pretty fit. Uh, he, he, I partnered with him when we were younger, um, and lo and behold, he ended up catching the COVID. He was put on the breathing machine, and he's no longer breathing. There was a whole bunch of other complications and other uh, morbidities that he had, but death came into the family. Now, when you start realizing this concept of death, what are we supposed to do? Uh, when this happened in the church at Thessalonica, the people kind of panicked, and they were like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And that's why Paul wrote them a letter, and he says, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to have to sorrow as those without hope, because he says, we have hope. There's something more than death. And so when you read through, you're going to see that he says death is not the end and proof positive, Jesus Christ. Jesus died. He tasted of death, but Jesus is alive. And he goes on and he says, for those of you that are starting to psychologically and educational, almost as if you've been to an Ivy League school, you might say, well, we know that dead people don't rise. Well, that's true that when death comes, you don't see people coming back to life. But you do know that if there is a God, God can bring people back to life. We may not normally see it, but if you were standing there when Lazarus came from the grave, I want you to know you would, uh, you would, you would not be believing what the, uh, what the secular mind was telling you. 
when Jesus simply said, Lazarus, come forth, then you understand why it was easy to say Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It's really quite beautiful when you see all of these things. And even though there were a lot of charges and a lot of things going on, the apostle goes through the whole chapter 15 to answer questions. He even tells us what happens first. He said Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, but he's not the last. He said there were others that came out of the grave. There were 500 or so. But he says there's going to be another resurrection. And it's going to be a resurrection of the living and that's where you come towards the end of the text where he says, Behold, verse 51, I tell you something that's mysterious. It's something that is still veiled. It's something that the secular people don't get yet because they don't know God. He said, but let me tell you about this mystery. Verse 51, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all taste of death. He says, but we are going to have to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corrupted body will have to put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immorality. Or immortality. Uh, definitely not immorality when we go to heaven. Now when you think about that, you can clearly see that this is the cause. That when the apostle starts concluding things. He says, therefore, in light that, that death is not the end because of the resurrection of Christ, therefore, be steadfast. That's the cause. Now, the comprehensiveness of this, if you look at the verse 58, uh, once he declares the steadfastness, I believe that there are those three aspects. One that appeals to your thinking, one that appeals to your, uh, to your doing, and one that appeals to your feeling. The first one that are, is to be steadfast, and then he gives a, a definition, immovable. If you go to the Greek, you can see that the, the, the Greek word there is, is one that uh, is not super popular. Uh, what is, the root of it is el... el uh, is, Edrazo. Um, this word just simply means to be firm or to be solid in place, to be steadfast. And interestingly enough, that's why the next word comes and says immovable. As I've said before, some of you might picture this today because your car is stuck in a snowdrift that it's immovable. Well, there's a little bit of parallel that you might be able to say, but again, this is a spiritual strength. God is not saying that I want to stick you here so you can never do anything. No, what he's talking about, he says, I want you to be planted on a firm foundation. I want you to be placed solidly in Christ. And so when he explains this to you, this immovability means that nobody can pluck you out of Christ. Or if I went to John chapter 6 and John chapter 10, where the Lord is the good shepherd, he says, nobody can steal my sheep. Or if you go to the analogy where we're all in his hand, nobody can pluck you out of his hand. It's really interesting to be that kind of steadfast, to be so secure in Christ. I told you it's comprehensive, so it's not just simply that it deals with how we understand it, but also he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, this one comes out, this has to do with your hands and your actions and the use of time. What are you going to do today on this snow day? You know, let's just watch uh, Netflix, right? Oh, oh, no, no, the playoffs are on, right? Uh, maybe the Olympics, you want to look at previous year's Olympics or something and you want to get ready. There's a lot of things that are vying for your attention. But don't forget that he says always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
Okay, because of the cause that you're going to not just have it over at the end of your, of your breathing. When you've breathed your last, when your brain waves stop uh, moving, when your heart stops beating, whatever the, the, the sign of death comes, uh, he says, hey, the reason that you keep abounding in the work of the Lord is because that's not the end. You know, you just don't eat, drink, and be merry, and it doesn't matter. No, no, as, as our brother David Linden just preached recently, there is a judgment seat. There is a day of judgment. And all of us are going to meet the creator God, Elohim. And when we stand before him, he's going to separate between the wheat and the tares, between the sheep and the goats, between the believers and the unbelievers. And that separation is going to cause those going to heaven and it's going to cause those to not go to heaven. And even though it's unpopular today, hell is an awful place. And the Bible says broad is the way that leads there, and sadly, many are on that path. I want to challenge you, while we have breath in our life, we should be abounding in the work of the Lord, in the work of evangelism, in the work of a lot of things. But this is the work of the Lord. It's not just focused on your work. And I wanted to be able to let you know from, from the text here uh, that he says, Kurios, the Lord, it's the master. It's the one who guides you. It's the one that you take your orders from. He's the boss. Yes, sir. It's almost like he's the five-star general or he is the commander-in-chief. And he says we always should abound in what the Lord tells us to be abounding in. Not just sometimes, but we should be faithful in that. Now, you're in chapter 15 with me. Uh, do you know a few other verses are, are in the text that lead up to verse 58 of chapter 15? I take you back to chapter 6, and some of you would know it by memory. Whether you, this is the last verse of chapter 6, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you find yourself doing, uh, do it all to the glory of God. You see, this is just an echoing of that text. It's really quite beautiful that it incorporates all the different spheres that Abraham Kuyper, uh, who was a professor, a theologian in the Netherlands, he talked about sphere sovereignty. Wherever you find your workplace, wherever you find the place that God has put you, that's what you ought to be doing. Or I think of uh, my mentor, or one of the persons, Jerry Falwell Sr., not Jr. Uh, I think Vanity Fair just had a quote from Jerry Falwell Jr. that he said that he admitted he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. That makes me sad. But I, I knew his dad. Uh, his dad was a chancellor when I was at Liberty myself. And I remember the phrase that kept coming out off of his lips, that we were to be champions for Christ in every sphere that we find ourselves. And that was if you're going to be on the TV, if you're going to be on the Division I field, if you're going to be in professional sports, if you're going to be working at the New York Times, or if you're going to be working uh, in, the, in the trash department over here, uh, if you're going to be elected as an official, or you're going to be creating a new uh, business, whatever it is that you find yourself, be a champion for Christ. Not mediocre, but do it with excellence. Let your light shine before men. Now, you see all those particular things, but when, when I look at the, the comprehensiveness of this text, he's saying it, it, it wraps up all of your life. What you think, what you do, and interestingly, what you feel. The end of that text says, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, think about that for a moment. Uh, yesterday... When, uh, when I got up early and I, I was looking at the snow that came down, it was still snowing. Uh, the wind was blowing, and a lot of the snowflakes were horizontal. Uh, so I ended up getting my snow shovel, and I started to clear out my driveway. 
And it was quite interesting that as I would shovel and clear out a path for my car, uh, you know, it was, it was starting to get filled back in. Because the wind was blowing, the blizzard was so strong that it was taking the little snowflakes from other places that had been on the ground and had it just filled in the gap that I was clearing out. It was in vain. And I remember as my face was starting to get ice crystals on it uh, because it was so cold with the wind blowing, I, I, I gave up. I went back into the house and we had something warm to drink, figuring that I would come back later. Well, you see, when you look at this text, he says that there's a lot of people who feel like serving the Lord is useless. You try and you try and you try and you try. You put up with this uh, sacrifices. You do without. Uh, you watch other people seemingly prosper. They get away with their false accusations. And you're just saying, this is a waste. Hey, if you're the one thinking of it, you're not the first one to think that. The uh, Solomon, when he got to be old, you can read the book of Ecclesiastes, especially towards the end. He uses the word vanity over and over and over. He says, all of this is vain. He says, I've worked all my life. I've accumulated all this wealth. I've had all these kids. I've done this and that. I've, I've got tribute. I've seen the world. I've understood even how the ants work. He says, I've, I, I see it all. I get it. And he says, but when I'm going to die, what, what does it matter that I know it all? And so that he ends up coming to a conclusion at the end of chapter 12 that the fear of the Lord is what matters. It's this relationship with the creator God that matters. It's not in vain. And so when I look at this particular text, he says, knowing that your labor, your, your time on this earth is not in vain in the Lord. Basically, I believe that this plays to your emotion. It's not just to your head to know this stuff, but you start to feel like, oh, well, this isn't a waste. My life on this earth isn't invisible to God. It may be canceled by other people. I may find myself being persecuted. I might even find myself in jail. Guess what? You won't be the first. You can go to, to Acts chapter 16. The apostle did some of his best singing with Silas in the Philippian jail. Now, when, when you realize that your abounding in the work of the Lord is not a waste of time, that your life, whether it be uh, just one decade or if it be like nine decades, like my mom who just celebrated her 90th birthday up there. Happy birthday, mom, uh, again. Your life is not in vain if it is connected to Christ. This should warm your heart. This should comfort you. Because Paul had already told the Corinthian believers back in chapter 1, uh, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 14, in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, he says, the natural people don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to them. They can't know them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, he basically goes on to say, folks that are living in this world, they don't get it. That's why it, they, they can't discern through the things. They'll never understand what he says, why you should be steadfast. The comprehensiveness is because we who are spiritual, verse 15, judge all things. We see things because we have the mind of Christ. And because we have the mind of Christ, if I go back to chapter 1, verse 18, those of you that, that are familiar with it, he says, the message of the cross, that is the gospel message, as, as he echoes in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, remember how I told you that he talks about how Jesus came, that he lived the life, then he died, he was buried, and then he rose again from the dead? Well, if you go back to verse 18 of chapter 1, 
as he starts his conversation off with his, with his congregation, he says, for the message that I've preached about Jesus and the cross, it's foolishness to the people whose life is in vain. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's almost like the apostle is quoting John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish. But whoever is not resting in him will perish. And that's because he says the message of that cross is still foolishness to them. They don't get it. But to us who are being saved, though, uh, to us who, that God is working on, he started a good work in this, uh, the work of regeneration, and he's putting faith in our hearts. He's opening up our eyes so that we can see. He's developing a steadfastness of that faith. You can see to, thus, to those who are being saved, this cross message, this understanding of what Jesus went there for, it is the very power of God. It is. It is what changes everything. And that's why the comprehensiveness is be steadfast. Because it changes not only your understanding, it changes your, your daily schedule and your practice and application, but it changes your heart. If you know that your life is not a waste. God has you here, if, if you remember that verse from Esther, for such a time as this. The last point that I want to draw out is not only the cause and, of course, the comprehensiveness, but it's the compassion. When I realize that, that Paul is writing this to his believer, to believers, to brothers, it's an appeal to everybody that's in this mysterious body of Christ. Now, this is kind of interesting because uh, when you read the book of Romans, he cautions over and over about as much as is possible, live at peace, and especially between those who name the name of Christ, to those who are of the household of faith. Read that in chapter 12 of Romans. In, in Corinthians, he's already told them, you guys have been polarized by following different leaders. Some say Paul's the best. Some say Apollos is the best. Some of you are liking these other people. And he says, this ought not to be. Jesus is the head. Don't get caught up with following these other ones. Follow Christ. Be steadfast and immovable from that position. No matter what you're enticed with. Always abound in doing the Lord's work, knowing that it's not empty or vain. But he says, brothers, you guys, I've known you. I've spent time with you. I've shared the gospel with you. You know me. You can read about that in chapter 4. He says, you may have misunderstood what ministry is like. You may have lived in nicer houses than me, or you may have had nicer transportation than this. He says, he says you may not get all of what is involved in what God's called me to be a witness of. But he says, we have a relationship. God has put me in place to be an apostle to you, to be a shepherd to your soul. And as that, I'm, I'm telling you, please, I plead with you. Just like he did in Romans 12, I beg of you by the mercies of God that you would present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now he writes to the church in Corinth and he pleads with them, my brothers, my sisters, don't give up. Be in Christ. And in application of that, I ask a couple questions. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not resting in what Jesus has done in dying for you and being buried and being rose again, verses 3 through 5, then this idea of being steadfast is craziness. Why would anybody want to stay in a religion where you got a dead guy? Who would want to stay in a religion dealing with a guy that, that didn't even know what a cell phone was? 
with disciples that didn't even have flush toilets, with people that were pushing ideas that were so nice and theoretical, the way, the truth, and the life. You see, if people don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, then you'll think that I'm crazy. And you might use different kinds of force. Instead of being immovable in Christ, instead of being steadfast to the truth of God, you might use majority rule, postmodern tools of canceling, bullying, and even violence. Why wouldn't you? If this is all there is, then why wouldn't you make this the best it could be in your own understanding? The only problem is it's not going to be the best for somebody else. You're going to create more divisions and more strife and that's what we see in politics, and that's what we see creeping into the church and into the homes. If you are in Christ, you wouldn't move away. You wouldn't. You stay firmly on that solid rock who is Christ. But people who are not solidly in Christ will go wherever the current takes them, wherever the floodwaters will blow them towards. But when you're in Christ, you can't move. You're almost like Noah, who when he was in the ark, there was no getting out of the ark. He'd be crazy if he wanted to. But when the ark door was shut up, he was there. And he was abounding in the work that his Lord had given him to take care of all the animals for all that time. But you know, he was abounding in the work of the Lord before he got in the ark. Because he was still in Christ before he was being protected from the wrath of God. As I've told you, Noah was preaching the gospel while he was building that boat. He was like Nehemiah in a sense. He had two tasks, and probably we do too. Whatever you do, uh, let me quote again Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, whether you eat or drink or whatever your job is, you do it to the glory of God. You communicate the gospel while you do what he's called you to do. If you're abounding in the work of the Lord, as I said, it seems crazy to the world. They're going to persecute you. And that's why James says, hey, don't be surprised. It's going to happen to you just like it happened to me. If you follow anybody's example, whether it's Paul or Peter, it's just like the, they followed Christ. Jesus ended up being hoisted on the cross, not because he was bad, but because he was good. The world couldn't stand it. The work of the Lord, his mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He, he first came to pay the penalty of sin, and then the commission is what he calls us into, is to take this gospel wherever we go, to every culture, language, and every, every tongue, nation, and tribe. This, this is why our life is not wasted. Some people may be frustrated if they come down with the virus, and they feel like their life is shortened. Well, you may feel that way. But I tell you, if you were in a car accident today because your car slipped off of a curb and ended up having a collision where you died today, it wouldn't be from COVID, but you'd still have to taste death. You see, your life is not in vain in the Lord. So this is why I encourage everybody listening, don't be so caught up with the voices of this world that don't have godliness and they don't have the mind of God in their forefront. They only think about this earth and what it could be, and the utopia that they can make it. You know, John Lennon said it so well, I can, that he could imagine. He could imagine a borderless place. He could imagine a religiousless place. He could imagine no God. And he says, what a world this would be. The problem is, is that the world that he was pretending to think that he could make in his mind is crashing. 
it is going to smash. Because God says, as I told you from 1 Corinthians 16, behold, we're going to be changed. Verse 52, the moment is going to finally come. Every, it's going to happen this quick, even faster. The trumpet of God's going to sound, and the dead that have already died are going to be raised, and those who haven't tasted of death are going to be changed, and it's going to happen. And it's going to prove what he said before, that our life was not in vain in the Lord. Brothers, find encouragement in this. Sisters, take heart. Regardless of what anything goes on in this world, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you that the, the apostle didn't end with chapter 14. I am so thankful that we had a teaching about the resurrection. Lord, even though Corinth had crept into that church and secularism has crept into ours these days, capital C Church, I do pray that you will keep us ever alert to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and because he conquered death, because death has died, now we can say, as the text says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Lord, we realize that it's not fun to die, it's not fun to see death, but thanks be to God, who has given us a victory over death when we are in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name for this good news. And all of God's people can say, amen. I want to finish with a familiar little chorus, one that I've sung a long time in the past, and it's, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'"